Well, we're in uh, Genesis 18 today. We're going to read verses 16 through 33, looking this morning at the prayer of Abraham, which he prays for the city of Sodom. But we're going to begin in Genesis, in Genesis 18, verse 16, and we'll read all the way to 33, the last verse of the chapter. This is God's word. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they ha- what they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have overtaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty-five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are found there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. But this once Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to God in prayer. O Lord, our God, we thank you for this glorious prayer of Abraham for the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us in your word, for we, your servants, listen. Hear our prayer, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Once upon a time, there was a man who went out to lunch with his six-year-old son. They sat down to eat, and before the food arrived, the son said, Dad, I think that we should pray before our meal. Now, the dad was very proud of his young six-year-old son, and he also recognized that it was kind of a loud restaurant, so he said, I love that idea, son. Why don't we sit down, but instead of praying out loud, we'll pray silent prayers. And so they did. They closed their eyes, they bowed their heads, they waited. The dad finished first, and he waited for his son. 30 seconds, still not finished. A minute Still not finished. Two minutes after his dad had finished praying, he said to his son, Son, I I think the food is going to get cold if we don't stop praying. Are, Are you almost done? He said, Yes, Dad. Yes, Dad, I'm finished. Amen. So they started to eat their lunch. But the dad was still a little bit intrigued about this. And so he said to his son, I just, I have to know, what were you saying to God for so long before your prayer was over. And the son said, what do you mean? I thought we were going to pray silent prayers. What is prayer? Is prayer talking to God about our needs and wants and desires like the father was attempting to do? Or is prayer about listening to God? Allowing him to talk to us about his needs, his wants, and his desires as the son attempted to do. Should our prayers be ordered or should they be organic? When we pray in our life groups, should we pray around the circle one person after the next like good orderly Presbyterians? Or should everyone pray As they feel led, like hippies and anarchists. Should we pray at set times of the day, in the morning, at night, before meals, after meals? Should we pray at various times throughout the day, whenever a need presents itself, whenever we're struck by the glory and goodness of God? Should we pray acts, prayers, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication? What if we mix up the letters? This is somewhat of an aside, but a few months ago we were talking about acts, prayers in our life group, and someone asked if we should pray cats, prayers, C-A-T-S. And I answered, only if you're Andrew Lloyd Webber. Exactly one person laughed at that joke, and that one person was me. How about this? Should we pray other people's prayers? Should we pray the Lord's prayers? Should we pray the Psalms? Should we pray written prayers? Things that are in prayer books, like the Book of Common Prayer or the Valley of Vision. Should we pray in tongues? Should we pray in King James English with plenty of these and thous and beseechings and things like this? Why should we pray at all if God is sovereign? If God is sovereign, if God is already in control, isn't that like asking an author to change the ending of a book that's already been written? 
How do we pray in the name of Christ? Wrapped in his mercy and grace. Is prayer about us changing God? Or is prayer about God changing us? These are some of the things that we'll be thinking about for the next 13 weeks as we make our way through one of the, the most important prayers and series of prayers in the Bible. Now, we'll start with Abraham this morning, and in the weeks ahead, we will learn to pray by praying alongside Jacob and Moses and Hannah, David, Heman, who wrote Psalm 88, Daniel, and then finally, we'll spend the three weeks before the missions conference and the three weeks after the missions conference learning to pray with Jesus by working our way through the Lord's Prayer and the high priestly prayer, which we find in John chapter 17. Throughout this series, I hope you'll see that prayer is not something that's ancillary in the life of the believer, that critically, that prayer is absolutely vital and absolutely critical to us as people of faith. Whether we sit when we pray or stand when we pray, whether we pray with our eyes open or our eyes closed, whether our prayers are frequent and short or infrequent and long, we are who we are when we pray. You are who you are when you pray. That is the real you. Tim Keller, one of my old pastors, wrote an amazing book on prayer, and in that book he writes this, prayer is the only entryway into genuine self-knowledge. It is also the main way that we experience deep change the reordering of our loves. Prayer is how God gives us so many of the unimaginable things that he has for us. Indeed, prayer makes it safe for God to give us many of the things that we most desire. It is the way that we know God, the way that we finally treat God as God. Prayer is simply the key to everything we need to do and be in life. And so, we begin our study in Genesis this morning, that great book of beginnings, by asking God to teach us how to pray. Teach us to believe the gospel. Teach us to love our neighbors. Teach us to pray bold, confident, world-changing prayers. Teach us to pray humble, broken, brutally honest prayers. How do we do that? We begin with Abraham, the father of faith, the friend of God, and his mysterious encounter with three men, one of whom happened to be the Lord himself. How did Abraham pray? And how did Abraham's prayers teach us about how we should pray? Did Abraham change God's mind? Did God change Abraham's mind? And why did Abraham stop with ten righteous men? Why didn't he keep going? 
If you're taking notes this morning, here's the outline. We're going to go through four things about Abraham's prayer, four things that should be present in our prayers and shape our prayers as we make our prayers to God. First, we'll see that Abraham's prayer had gospel foundations. Second, we'll see that Abraham's prayer had gospel frailty. Third, we'll see that Abraham's prayer, Abraham's prayer had gospel fortitude. And fourth, we'll see that Abraham's prayer had gospel focus. So gospel foundations, gospel frailty, gospel fortitude, and gospel focus. You ready? All right, let's get started. The first thing that we see is that Abraham's prayer had gospel foundations. Now, in order to understand what's happening in this story, I want to back up real quick to verse 1 so we can kind of set the table and see where we are in the story. Verse 1, And the Lord, Yahweh, appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Now, it's it's kind of a strange scene, so let me tell you what happened. Abraham was in his tent. He was cooling off. It was the heat of the day. He looked up, and behold, he saw three people standing there. He rushed over and said, come inside. I'll wash your feet. I'll give you a meal. You can stay with me. Now, that might seem a little bit strange to us, since most of us don't invite strangers that we meet by the side of the road over for dinner, much less having them come inside to wash their feet. But that was the custom in the ancient world, in the Middle East, And so that's what Abraham did. He invited them inside, and they came inside. Now here is where it gets a little bit strange. We know from verse 1 that one of these three men was the Lord. Now we're not sure exactly how Abraham knew, but at some point he figured it out that he wasn't talking to three simple strangers or travelers or even angels. He knew that he was talking to the Lord. I think he figured it out in verse 14 when the Lord said, This time next year, I am going to give your wife Sarah, who is old and barren, a son. Also, tell her to stop laughing. It's very rude to laugh at God. That's where we pick up the story, verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. Again, it's a little bit confusing because the question is, Who is the Lord addressing? At first, it almost seems like maybe he's talking to himself, or maybe he's talking to the other travelers who are with him, but it quickly becomes clear that the Lord is talking directly to Abraham. He's saying, should I tell you, Abraham, what I'm about to do to the city of Sodom? Now, here's the question. In this story, 
between Abraham and God as we introduce Abraham's great prayer for the city? Who speaks first? Was it Abraham or was it God? Well, according to verse 17, God spoke first. The Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? You'll see that as a pattern throughout Abraham's life. If you back all the way up to Genesis 12 where we meet Abraham, we see over and over again, whenever God has an encounter with Abraham and Abraham has an encounter with God, it is always God who speaks first. That's true in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 14, Genesis 15, Genesis 16. It's about Hagar and Ishmael, so Abraham's not in there. And then again, in Genesis 17, and right here in Genesis 18, God speaks first. What does he say? Verse 19, For I have chosen Abraham, that he may command his children and his household after him, to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. When we pray as Christians, we always pray in response to God's promises. We always pray in response to God's grace. Christian prayer has gospel foundations. When we pray, we're not shooting up a flare into heaven, hoping that someone up there will hear our prayer and respond to us. We're not praying to the unknown God or the first mover or the big man upstairs. We're praying to the God of Abraham. To the God who chose Abraham by his grace. To the God who said to Abraham, I will be your God. And you, Abraham, will be the father of my people. Even though your wife Sarah is barren, she will be the mother of many nations. When we pray, we pray to the God who loved us first. We pray to the God who called us out of the wilderness of unbelief and said, I love you because I love you because I love you. And I will always love you and nothing will separate you from my love, not even your sin. Christian prayer is deeply and profoundly relational. God establishes a relationship with us saying, I will be your God in spite of your sin. I will love you. I have always loved you, even from before the foundations of the earth. I will always love you because nothing can separate you from my love. And when you break this covenant that I have made with you, when you sin and forsake me, I will die for you. Which is exactly what Jesus did when he died for us on the cross. Our calling then in prayer is is not to seek the Lord who is not there. Our calling is to respond to the God who is always there. By saying, we are your people. We repent We believe, we love you. May your kingdom come and may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, even as we forgive our debtors. Real, real prayer, Christian prayer, has gospel foundations. It's covenantal. It's familial. It's built on the foundation of God's grace. The second thing we see is that Abraham's prayer had gospel frailty. Verse 27, Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Why did Jesus have to come and die on the cross for us? Because we're dust and ashes. Because we're weak and we're frail. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We do sin and fall short of the glory of God. This morning, Pastor David taught us from the book of Isaiah. In the book of Isaiah, we learn that all of our good deeds are like filthy rags. Now, we might expect Isaiah to say, all of your bad deeds are like filthy rags. We can understand that. But he says, even the good things that you do are tainted with sin. Without Jesus, we have no hope. Without Jesus, we are condemned. Gospel frailty is simply the honest recognition that we are finite, fallen people. That's why most of us bow our heads when we pray. We're demonstrating our weakness and our need. That's why many of us kneel when we pray. We don't always do that as Presbyterians. That's usually not part of our tradition, but I have kneeled when I've prayed. Many of us have kneeled when we pray. That's why we sometimes stand when we pray. Again, the, the purpose is to show honor to God, respect. The point is that prayer is not a conversation between equals. When we pray, we are entering into the very throne room of God. We're talking to the creator of the universe. The Bible says that our God is a consuming fire. And we are, Zechariah 3 says, branches plucked out of the fire by Jesus who went into the fire to take us out. That affects our posture when we pray. That affects our attitude when we pray. That affects our vocabulary when we pray. It keeps us from demanding things from God. You'll notice that in this prayer, Abraham didn't say, God, you must save the city of Sodom. He didn't say that. He asked God to spare the city of, God, of Sodom, which is very different. Now, Abraham's prayer might sound a little bit like a negotiation to you because there's a back and a forth, and will you say 15, will you say 40? But if you look closer, it's not a negotiation. It's a series of requests. Now, bold requests, we'll get to that in a moment, but he's asking God to do something. He is not telling God to do something. There is no naming and there is no claiming. There is asking and beseeching the Lord to save the people of Sodom. In the New Testament, Jesus said, don't pray like the Pharisees. Don't 
pray like the conservative religious people. I hate their prayers. Why? No humility. See, when the Pharisees prayed, one of the main purposes of their prayer was to be seen by other people to project a sense of righteousness so that others might see and say, oh, what a righteous man this is. And so they would pray, oh, Lord, thank you that I am not like this person over here, this sinful person. I go to church every week. I tithe. I'm an elder. I'm a deacon. I teach Bible study classes. I go to youth group every week. I'm so holy, I go to other people's youth groups. And not just for the girls. I go to study the Bible at the youth group. The gospel makes us humble. The gospel enables us to say, I am so messed up that it took the Son of God to come to this earth to rescue me. I I didn't need a, a pastor to come and rescue me. I did not need an angel to come and rescue me. I did not need my evangelical neighbor with the fish on his car to come and rescue me. I needed the sinless Son of God to come and die on the cross This is the depth of my sin. Be honest when you pray. Be humble when you pray. Christian prayer has gospel frailty. The third thing we see is that Abraham's prayer had gospel fortitude. Now, this is the paradox of the gospel. The same Abraham who prayed with gospel frailty, the same Abraham who said, I am dust, I am ashes, prayed with gospel fortitude. He prayed big, bold, audacious prayers. Verse 23, Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Now, many of you know the background of this. You know that Sodom was a wicked city. It was filled with sexual sin. It was filled with materialism, greed, pride, exploitation. That city was a disaster. And so, when God comes to Abraham and says, I'm going to destroy Sodom, what does he say? Well, he doesn't say what I think many of us would say. Good. It's about time. Did you hear that you can't even get a U-Haul in Sodom? So many people are moving out of the city that uh, you can't find one. And they're all moving here, and our houses are up 40% because of all the people from Sodom who are moving into our city, right? He didn't pray that prayer. He asked for mercy. He asked for grace. He asked God to spare the city. Not once, not twice, not even three times, six times. Now, can you, can you imagine praying like this? Lord God, will you save the city for the sake of 50 righteous people? You will? Great. 
How about 45? How about 40? How about 30? How about 20? How about 10? Abraham is like a gospel auctioneer. He's a, come on, keep lowering it and keep lowering it. I can't imagine praying like this, and yet here he is. It's in the Bible. Where did Abraham get this kind of fortitude? Where did he get this kind of courage? Well, the answer is the gospel. He knew that he was an adopted son of God. He knew that God loved him. He knew that God is gracious. He knew that God is merciful. He knew that God forgives sinners. And so he prayed a series of bold, big, missional prayers for the city of Sodom. Do you pray big, bold, missional prayers for our city? Do you pray big, bold, missional prayers for our nation or our world? Do you pray that revival might take place in our city, in our state, in our region, in our time? Do you know that when it comes to God's grace, there is no such thing as a lost cause? And when it comes to prayer, there is no such thing as an unreasonable request. When you pray, you're not a stranger approaching the king of kings, asking for a meeting, asking for an audience, asking for a, a hearing. You're a child of God, a son or daughter of your heavenly father, and asking him to do and be who he is. Our God does impossible things all the time. He is outrageously merciful. He is outlandishly generous. He changes hearts. He changes minds. He changes cities. And one day, he will change the entire world. Pray that God would begin in our city Pray that our God would change the world. And when he answers that prayer, keep asking for more. Abraham prayed, Abraham's prayer had gospel fortitude, boldness, born of grace. The last thing we see is that Abraham's prayer had gospel focus. Abraham's prayer reflects the logic and the dynamics of the gospel. Here's what I mean. What did Abraham ask God to do? He asked God to spare the city for the sake of ten righteous people. He said, will you impute the righteousness of ten people to thousands of unrighteous people so that those unrighteous people might be saved? God's answer is yes. I am willing to spare the unrighteous for the sake of the righteous. That's the logic of the gospel. God is willing to spare the unrighteous for the sake of the righteous. Now, here's the question of the hour. Why did Abraham stop when he got to 10? 
Why didn't he say, will you spare the city for the sake of one righteous person? That's where the prayer is headed, right? You expect him to keep going. Maybe he'll take a pit stop at five. But you know he's getting to one. That's the only logical place. But Abraham gets down to ten and then stops. Why? I think he stopped at ten because he realized that he's hit a dead end. Yes, God will spare the city for the sake of one righteous man, but what do you do if there's no righteous man? See, that's, that's our dilemma too. Where are we going to find one righteous man, one innocent man, where our sins would be imputed to him and his righteousness would be imputed to us? Where do we find the one man who will die so that we might live? God's answer is Jesus. God's answer is the sinless Son of God. We are spared for the sake of Jesus, the righteous man who died in our place. When Jesus died on the cross, his righteousness was imputed to us. And our unrighteousness was imputed to him. We are guilty. We deserve to die. We, we are no better than the people of Sodom. And that's not just conjecture. It's actually in the Bible. If you go to the book of Ezekiel, he says to the people of Israel, essentially the church, the covenant people, he says, actually the people of Sodom are better than you because they disobeyed without knowing the law of God. You have the law of God, and you completely disregard it. And so, that's us. The people of Sodom is us. It's not them. It's us. It's our heart. And yet, we don't die. Not for the sake of ten righteous men. For the sake of one righteous man. Do your prayers have gospel focus? Are you constantly thinking about the gospel and celebrating the gospel and thinking about how to apply the gospel to your life and your circumstances and your family and your work and our city and our church? And Abraham did. And in so doing, he teaches us how to pray. The gospel really does change everything, including the way we pray. Because of Jesus, our prayers have gospel foundations. We pray because God loved us first. We pray with frailty, knowing that we are dust and ashes. We pray with fortitude, knowing that we have been forgiven because of the gospel focus of Jesus and his love. Let me encourage you, as you pray in this season of the life of our church, pray like Abraham and rest in the promises of God's grace. Let's go to God in prayer. O Lord our God, we thank you for your mercy, which you've shown to us in Christ. We thank you that our unrighteousness is not counted against us but that we are saved because of Jesus. Thank you, Lord God, for his love. We pray that we would be ambassadors of that love in our city and in our world. 
so that many, many people might be brought into your kingdom through the message of the gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.